Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jora. Now, usually we have somebody as our guest who's either locally or, or nationally famous, but we're going to do things just a little bit differently tonight. Tonight's guest is my friend and my former colleague at Sports Ticker, Matt Bruce. Now, before I bring Matt on, there's two things I need to tell you about him. One is he's probably the smartest guy that I know. So, you know, the, he's got that going for him. And on top of that, and, and probably even better than that, is, is not only that he's really smart, but he's also very, very kind. And, you know, sometimes these really smart people are, are arrogant jerks, and, and Matt's pretty much the exact opposite of that. So I'm very pleased that he agreed to come on tonight, and uh, hopefully you'll find our, our talk engaging. So, Matt, thanks for coming on, and, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, and what a glowing recommendation. Uh, it's high expectations set. There you go. No, no low bars for you tonight. We're going we're gonna to set a, a high bar uh, record tonight. So let's get right to it. And, of course, here in Mets land, probably the biggest question in everyone's mind right now is who's going to be the club's uh, next manager, who's going to replace Terry Collins. So as, as an outsider, who do you think that the Mets should uh, hire to be their new manager? Well, I'll give a boring answer, Kevin Long. And the reason for that is the most important thing that a manager can do is just set the players up for success. And think about how a manager actually does that is getting them the information they need, listening to them, hearing them out, above all, just earning their trust. I think Long already has earned the trust of at least the Mets players, probably also the Mets brass. They've kept him around for a reason. I also have a theory about very famous people, which is that when you become a celebrity, the barriers to doing things outside your core competency are way too low. And where this plays out for baseball managers is that somebody who everyone has heard of is going to get way more chances than really they deserved. And so I think, although it's not the sexiest answer, that Long is the most likely to succeed and least likely to disappoint. Now, I would have no problem if Long indeed is the, the final choice, but I guess that I'm approaching it from a different point of view, and this Mets team is supposed to be pitching first. So I'm, I'm leaning towards preferring somebody who, who has more of a pitching background, and, and Long obviously being the team's hitting coach right now, he has more of a, a hitting background. And, and one name that, that started to gain a tiny bit of momentum in the, the blogosphere is uh, uh, Indians pitching coach uh, Mickey Calloway. And just uh, wondering if, if you had heard Mickey Calloway being uh, thrown out as a uh, possibility and uh, if you had any knowledge of him. I mean, obviously he's had great success with the uh, Cleveland pitching staff. So what are your thoughts on Mickey Calloway? So it's interesting that the Indians have done so well with their pitching and made a lot of unorthodox moves that I think it attributed to Francona, but uh, clearly Callaway has something to do with getting players in the right frame of mind to buy into the system, Andrew Miller especially. 
The only caveat I would have about a pitching coach generically, not Callaway in particular, but just for whatever reason, historically, people on the hitting side have risen to the manager role more successfully. And I'm thinking of, as a cautionary tale, Bud Black, widely highly regarded and just for whatever reason had not been the smashing success that people thought he would be. This is very small sample size. I think not by itself enough to rule out Callaway, but uh, it's just, I'm observing that pitching coaches haven't risen as frequently or successfully. Maybe Callaway will break that mold. Uh, An excellent point. Uh, Now, I want to transition to something. I I talked about the Mets being uh, a team that depends on its starting pitching. And one thing that Uh the general manager, Sandy Alderson, uh, has said that's uh, drawn a lot of criticism, I guess, is that, you know, he he views defense as as clearly secondary to to offense. And I'm, I'm wondering, can you really adopt that belief if your your club is being based on pitching? Can you essentially punt defense when you're constructing your club with a a pitching centric uh, mindset? I think there's exactly one type of pitching staff where you can get away with that. And fortunately for the Mets before health issues got in the way, they really had that type of pitching staff, which is the high strikeout let as few balls as possible get put into play. And just as a matter of arithmetic, the fewer balls the defenders have to convert the, less make or break it is whether they do. Now we saw uh, a really interesting thing. I mean, I think if you asked fans of the game, not necessarily fans of the Mets, but just fans of the game, what you thought of the Mets defense this past year, they would say, they're not a very good defensive club. But if you actually broke it down, the outfield defense wasn't bad. The outfield defense, at least by uh, defensive run saves metric, was actually above average but the infield defense was horrific. And uh, it's, it's just an interesting dynamic. And can you ever recall a, a team that had such a, uh, I guess, a Jekyll and Hyde personality and that one section of its defense was quite good and, an, and another section was forgettable? Well, we'll be charitable and we'll call it forgettable. Yeah, no points of comparison to that specific breakdown are immediately coming to mind. I think... The Royals teams of recent years had that kind of discrepancy, but mainly because their outfield defense was just so good. Meanwhile, my neck of the woods, I've been an Oakland A's season ticket holder for many years now, and unfortunately, I've gotten quite used to some bad infield defense without the (laughs) benefits of the good outfield. All right, well, let's uh, switch gears and, and talk about an MLB issue. And in, in my opinion, I think we're, we're due for an expansion. We had two expansions back in the 90s, which came a little bit too close together. And I think it took a little while for the, the talent level to, to catch up. But, I mean, I, I believe that we're at that point, and, and it makes more sense to have 32 clubs rather than 30. And I want to know, what do you think? Do you think MLB is ready for expansion? You raised an interesting point about talent. I think this is most noticeable in how much easier it is now than it had been in recent years to make sure that top to bottom, your pitching staff in particular, won't embarrass you. I remember well in the mid-1990s, there were some teams, even not the bad teams, 
that just had huge problems in the fifth and sixth innings. So we're in a much better state there. And then the question really is, are there particular markets out there that can support a team and doesn't already have one? So not New York, um, because by population and all the demographics, if it weren't for territorial issues, I think you could get four or five teams in New York. Given that that's not going to happen, um, I think, for example, the fans in Montreal showed a good track record of rooting for the Expos when the Expos were a winning team. I know they got a ton of crap when they wouldn't support a losing team, but I'd say there are markets out there. Now, you brought up a, a point that you know I, I got all happy inside when you said it is that the New York market could easily support four or five teams. And I just think that would personally be glorious if, if we had that. But uh, I know that the the territorial rules would uh, uh, prohibit a third team from ever coming in, much less a, a fourth or a fifth team. But I wanted, to, I wanted to let you know that you made me happy when you said that. And obviously I think that Montreal would be one of the uh, the front runners for expansion. And, you know, obviously if we do expand, we'll expand by two cities. So do you have a, a – maybe a, a second favorite to go along with Montreal? I think it really depends on where people live and how they're turning out to minor league baseball games. My naive answer there would be um, either Charlotte or Nashville. That part of the country seems to have some good baseball roots without happening to have a major league team. I've also heard Portland thrown out as a possibility I've been to Portland a few times, love the city. I have a ridiculous logistical reason to hope that it wouldn't be Portland, which is from what we've been hearing, the most likely expansion plan would have divisions with eight teams more geographically aligned. And just as it happens, there are eight teams from Denver on West and there are eight teams in the central time zone. And I will readily admit this is a silly reason to choose one city over the other. But if Portland got thrown into the mix, it just gets thrown off by one. Now you mentioned from you had eight teams from Denver West. I mean, couldn't you switch Denver into uh, a different time zone? You could, and then the interesting question is which of the central time zone teams does it make the most sense to move east? Um, you know, maybe Houston gets thrown into some sort of uh, deep south division, or maybe Milwaukee or Minnesota into some sort of Great Lakes division. And it's not the end of the world. There's always some plan that will work, just not satisfy everybody. Now that we've solved expansion, let, let's move on. Um, after that, what, what do you think, um, you know, there's, regardless of what time period in MLB history you look at, there's always big ticket items, things that perhaps that they wish would be different or things that they, they look to improve. And, and what would you think is the, the biggest issue facing MLB today? So it's interesting that you mentioned today because I think what would keep me up at night as a baseball executive is not quite as much of a today issue. And it's hard to put this delicately because I know I've been around a while, but the typical baseball fan is not young. It's fairly affluent, but not young, which means that the typical baseball fan of today is going to be probably dead 50 years from now which would hey be fine if, yeah, it's both of us. <laughs> um, if baseball had shown a 
greater playbook, sort of the, the consistent record of showing younger people what you and I already know full well, which is the, the magic of this game, the teams that we root for, the joy of winning, the drama in every pitch, the strength, all of that. For whatever reason, baseball has been a lot better at maximizing revenue than really expanding the base of having as big a product market fit as possible. And when there's money to be had, you know, when the TV deals are flush and when there's um, local taxpayers to extort for stadium money, then I can see why getting all of that money was a great short-term strategy for Bud and company. The problem comes in when you basically run out of places that will pay for a new stadium. And these days with more and more people cutting the cord, I don't think the next few years of TV deals will be quite as great as the previous few years. And so this will be the point where I guess the best way to put it is unless baseball figures out how to get people like Trout and Harper to be more like Curry and LeBron, or even, you know, get the broad roots for the the franchises that can have nationwide fan base, either they'll do something like that, or they'll look around 10, 15 years from now and think, boy, we wish we had done things differently. Actually, I'll mention one thing that kind of a specific thing that I worry about with the young people is that there are these amazing playoff moments and they're happening after midnight Eastern time. And I live on the West coast and there are these great plays happening after I have to put my kids to bed. And as much as I love taking my kids to games, it just makes it harder for them to see what the magic is. There's no question that, that MLB has sold out for the, the immediate cash payout. And, and we can certainly argue if that was the, the wisest course of action. But we've been hearing so long about how uh, the numbers skew older for MLB. And I'm wondering if it's not almost a, a henny-penny type situation where instead of just saying, well, how come the kids uh, 12 to, to 18 aren't falling in love with baseball like they used to, I think that it, it's time to em- embrace the fact that it's a, a 35-plus demographic or, or whatever the age breakdown is. And I would, I would expect that if we were going to see uh, a huge drop-off, that we would have seen it by now because, I mean, it's at least 25 years, and it's probably longer than that, where they've been complaining about, well, the kids can't stay up and watch the games. And I would think that we would see a, a decline already if it was going to happen. Then it seems very plausible. I suppose the best way to check that empirically would be how well are Generation X, I guess these days, 35, 45, um, like how well are we either sticking with the game if we got into it or better late than ever getting into it? I think baseball is a game, and obviously we're biased to this, but once we get into it at all, we're going to stick with the game. I think as long as you're, as long as it's just a matter of the numbers being skewed by the retention being so great. And as long as you have the continuing mix that it really is, you see a lot of 40 year old baseball fans as opposed to a lot of baseball fans born in the 1960s or earlier, they might be fine. 
I think they would still, if I were in a baseball executive's shoes, I would want to do everything in my power to make sure that more kids are actually playing the game and that they are at least going to some games in person, since I think in person is by far the best way to experience baseball. Oh, uh, agree, absolutely. Uh, my son, who's 14 years old and would seem to be in the, the target that you're looking to reach, he would never consider uh, sitting and, and watching a game with me. But if I say, hey, I'm going to a ballpark, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll come with you. So I, I think that's a, a perfect example of what you were just saying. But uh, I want to talk maybe more, maybe less about big picture and, and more about specific state of the game here in, in 2017 on the cusp of 2018. And, and that's with the, the usage of, of starting and relief pitchers. It seems like we're, we're asking our starters to go fewer and fewer innings, but we're not seeing the same uh, workloads for relief pitchers that maybe we, we saw when I first started watching the games. And it wasn't common, but it certainly wasn't unheard of for a relief pitcher to throw over 100 innings. I certainly remember Tug McGraw doing it for the Mets. But uh, this year, uh, the leader with uh, relief innings pitched according to fan graphs was uh, ex-Met Yusmero Pettit, who had uh, 87. So what I want to ask you is, do you think we'll see someone crack the 100-inning uh, mark as a reliever in 2018? an interesting question because when you have somebody pitching that many innings out of the bullpen, either it's that these are high leverage innings and this is someone both that good and that resilient, or that it's low leverage innings for a very bad team. I think we're more likely to see this for the high leverage case where the question would be, okay, if this guy is so great at relieving, but also you can stretch him out this far. Why isn't he in the starting rotation to begin with? And the only place where it makes sense to me that that would have a ready answer is a club like maybe Houston, where there are already five or six great starters pending good health, or maybe the Dodgers. Um, the reason I mentioned Houston is that I think the specific player most likely to do this is Chris Davinsky, assuming they keep using him the way they have. Now, to me, the the idea, uh, especially in this this era of the five and fly, five and fly starting pitcher, is to create pitchers, relief pitchers who could go two or three innings at a time. And I would think it would be great if we would have somebody go two innings pitch twice a week. And the season is roughly 26 weeks long. And if you're pitching mm -hmm. four innings a week, that's what 104 innings pitched. So I, mean, I, I don't out? see any reason. I don't see any reason why it, it's not feasible. And and Davinsky is, is certainly a guy that uh, jumps immediately to mind with the Mets. A guy that we used as a starting pitcher this year, uh, Seth Lugo. Uh, if everybody is healthy, he'd be in the bullpen, and you'd think he would be uh, an ec an excellent guy for that role. Robert Gesellman too. So do you think that? Um, in, in this day and age that that type of relief load over 26 weeks is, is feasible. I mean, is, or is that too much for a guy to get up and, and give that much week after week? I think it's completely feasible. I think the entire question is surrounding buy-in because there's this widespread notion you especially hear playoff broadcasters mention it now in October when these relievers accustomed to going one inning are going further. The idea that you 
leave it all on the field that inning that you rely so much on adrenaline. I don't know how true that actually is. And as not a major league player, I never will. I think for this particular discussion, what really matters is how widespread that perception is because the more players think that way, the harder it's going to be to get them to change that thinking. All right. Well, let me ask you a a much more Mets specific question. And that's uh, Mm -hmm. this year with the season going down the, the drain, we, we brought up, the, the Nets brought up their top two prospects, that being first baseman Dominic Smith and shortstop Ahmed Rosario. And they probably both played enough where they used up their, their rookie eligibility, but just barely. So mm-hmm. I think in a lot of people's minds, they're still rookies. And what I want to know from you, do you think it's possible for a team with ideas of contending to start the, the season with two rookies in their starting lineup like the Mets seem poised to do with Smith and Rosario in 2018? Well, if you look at how Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez are doing on the other side of town right now, that suggests that it can work. It's high risk, high reward, of course. Um, I don't think there's anything preventing that from being the recipe for success. Um, I suspect it's going to have a lot more to do with who's surrounding them in the lineup, that they'll either succeed or fail and Hopefully for Mets fans, they do succeed. I imagine that by, you know, as spring turns to summer, we'll have a much better idea of whether 2018 is the breakout year for those guys or if it's going to have to come later. Yeah, I don't want to go too far down uh, talking about the Mets rookies, but it, it was interesting to me that Dominic Smith came up with the reputation of being a good defensive first baseman who would hit the ball from uh, f- uh, foul line to foul line, but who didn't have a lot of power. And he was almost the exact opposite in that he hit a bunch of home runs, relatively speaking, but uh, didn't uh, didn't make a lot of contact and uh, did not appear to be very good defensively either. So it'll be real curious to see how how those two guys and and like you mentioned, if they'll be able by the middle of the year to 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 say that uh, yeah we're here we're MLB players and these two positions are locked down. But uh, anyway, let's let's move on. I want to go on to. Uh, a segment that we, we try to do each week, and, and that's a crazy prediction. So I'll give mm-hmm. you mine. I'm, I'm going to ask you what you think of my prediction, and then I'm going to ask you to give me yours, okay? Okay. All right, so, so my crazy prediction is that despite lowering their payroll and by all, in, uh, by all rumors that are out floating there now, the Mets are going to uh, go down uh, at least $10 million from last year's payroll. I think that the Mets are going to sign a free agent to uh, to a pretty big deal, something 50, 50 million or more over the life of contract, which is not typically something that Sandy Alderson does. So I want to know from you, how crazy is that? Not crazy. And I think it's specifically because of the market situation in New York. I know this is funny to say several minutes after pointing out that New York could easily support three or four teams, but in a market with two teams, the I think the more the Yankees threaten to suck the air out of the room, the more tempted the Mets are going to be to do something that uh, keeps them on the back pages, as it were. All right, so you shot down my crazy prediction. What's yours? So I have a bias um, being in Northern California on the East Bay and going to Oakland A's games all these years, this is maybe more wishful thinking than crazy prediction, but 
it's that you will see the Oakland A's in the 2018 playoffs. And this is going to depend on a lot of question marks, specifically on the pitching rotation. You have a a lot of guys that, you know, maybe they'll make it, maybe they won't. You know, will Jarrell Cotton rediscover his uh, stuff from a season ago? Will the health hold up? If a lot of things all broke right, and this is, of course, how gamblers lose money on teasers, but uh, if they really all broke right, I think it could happen. All right, I just want to point out, I just looked this up. This year, the, the A's finished at 75 and 87, 26 games behind the Houston Astros. And uh, I think that uh, saying that they're going to make the playoffs next year, I, I think that's certifiable. I'm, I'm ready to send you off to the padded room. Excellent. <laughs> you ace the crazy prediction part of the show. All right. Um, so uh, let's go back and talking about the uh, big picture uh, item. And, and one thing that, that's curious to me is, is how the NFL always seems to get branded as the copycat league, but it seems to me that it's just as apt to describe MLB that way as well. And it seems like now everyone is, is chasing the big power, uh, big power heat teams, big power hitters. Mm-hmm. And in in the process, speed has kind of been left behind. And I want to know, do you think we'll ever see uh, a team, a successful team, I'm, I'm thinking of like the mid-1980s St. Louis Cardinals that relied almost exclusively on speed. Do you think we'll see a team again like that? Not in the next 10 to 15 years, maybe in the next 20 to 30 years. I think the current state of baseball it is so easy to get a home run out of any given plate appearance and so rewarding to get that home run. This is because of changes on both sides of the ball, to be sure, but just enough of it is in pitching strategy and really what happens when you have the kind of heat that either batters are going to miss or they're going to hit it a long way. As long as the opportunity cost of not hitting a home run is as high as it is, I don't think you'll see any teams feel compelled to go the speed path. The thing that confuses now, me is, is yes, yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying that you don't see it on the immediate horizon. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So the, the thing that, that confuses me is that there, there are teams who are, who are just frankly are not going to be very good. You know, in, in the, the past few years, I mean, teams that we could put into that uh, category, uh, the Padres, they, they jump immediately to mind. I don't know when the last time they had a, a pennant contending team was, but I'm, I'm going to say it's more than three or four years ago. But some team in, in that situation, I wonder why when they're trying to, to rebuild, when they're building up their farm system, why they don't try to, to acquire uh, some guys who can act effectively as placeholders while the young guys develop with an emphasis on speed, because you think that that would be an, an undervalued asset in, in the marketplace. And, you know, um, Malik Smith, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think mm-hmm. the guy's very good, but he's really fast and he's really cheap and he can do something. And I'm, I'm curious why a team hasn't tried to say, well, we're going to put three guys who can steal 60 bases in our lineup and, you know, just the, what the heck, let's see what happens. Do you have any thoughts on and, on why maybe that hasn't been done? And the Royals, when they've been good the past few years, actually came closer to that than I think any team 
this decade will, although that was outfield defense as much as in bullpen, of course. Um, I think part of it is that as the number crunchers get better at what they do, they're observing that the key to value on the base paths isn't necessarily raw speed itself, but rather knowing when to take the extra base successfully and getting a lot of that success with relatively little of the blunders getting thrown out and so on. Reminds me a little bit of the Angels from about 15 years ago when Mike Socha had the team just very consistently going first to third, second home. Reminds me a little bit also of this year's Astros of all teams where you saw the the Altuve play. And to be fair, with if Sanchez had held on to that ball, if Judge had thrown the ball just a little bit better, that arguably should have been an out with good execution. But uh, Altuve forced the Yankees to execute, and they just didn't. And so I don't think you'll see like the the style of finding eight Billy Hamiltons and getting those eight Billy Hamiltons to get on base frequently enough. But I do think that, and ironically, this goes full circle to baseball teams copycatting each other, is that for whatever reason, the lesson teams drew from those Royal squads was bullpens win as opposed to that's what speed do. And so teams copied the bullpen aspect. If the Astros win the World Series this year, and if more people notice just how much more contact they're making and how many fewer strikeouts they're getting, then you might see, you know, not the Whitey Herzog Cardinals, but just more of the uh, consistently put the ball in play, force the other team to make plays and benefit from the other team not making plays. Well, we are all out of time. I'd like to, to thank my guest, Mr. Matt Bruce, for joining in and talking to us about the big picture items in the MLB along with the Mets. Matt, uh, it was a pleasure, and, and thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Have a great fall. You do the same. And everyone else, please tune again uh, next Wednesday night at 11 p.m. Eastern for Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. Good night, everyone, and goodbye.